It's great to have you with us. I want to read the very first sentence in your article because it really summarizes a lot about how a lot of people are feeling these days. And it's a short sentence. Quote, it's a frightening and perplexing time for Canadians who have either been vaccinated against COVID-19 or are trying to determine which vaccine to get close quote. And uh, it shouldn't be. This is messaging that has been pretty consistent up until quite recently, SIBO. Both Dr. Fauci in the States and the government of Canada had pretty much convinced all of us that when our turn came, whatever vaccine is offered to you, you take it. They're all great. And then and then the wheels came off. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your impressions of the complications provided by, of all people, the uh, National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the question. So um, I think, yeah, like, like what you said, right? So we started with a pretty consistent messaging at the beginning for all of the vaccine rollouts, right? So the messaging has been very consistent, right? So, yes. you know, you should take the first shot available to you. And, uh, yeah. you know, you not only do this for you, the, your, per, your personal health, you also do it for, you also actually do it for, you know, protect your families, your loved ones, and protect your community. I think that has been, you know, the consistent message we get, you know, until, until actually, until May 3rd, you know, when Nazi updated their recommendation. And uh, that's, I think, you know, the particular word, like I said in my article, right, the particular word triggering all of the confusion is the word, is this kind of concept that, you know, now there is a preferred vaccines, right? So they basically, the latest statements say that, you know, mRNA vaccines are preferred than, you know, Jason or, you know, AstraZeneca. I think that's where, you know, the con- confusion comes from, right? The the message coming from Nazi, which uh, contradicts, you know, what part uh, of, uh, Public health, what Health Canada has always been saying. Indeed. And and I, I suppose, if anything, it was complicated even more during the conversation because one of the, the top people at NACI, this National Advisory Committee on Immunization, went on in response to a question uh, about to this preferred vaccination, SIBO. She talked about, well, you know, if my sister were to uh, uh, to have taken this and complications were to have developed and she was taking it on my recommendation, I don't think I could live with myself. Or words to that effect that really, really jarred a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, the, the trouble there is, right, so she gave a story and that's, I think, matters the most because, um, you know, we pay more attention to stories and sure. we tend to, you know, we tend to kind of forget, you know, like the numbers, right? It's hard for us, right? So as natural human beings, it's very difficult for us to actually conceptualize um, abstract numbers. But, you know, we have a really, really better understanding, you know, if people give us examples, you, you know, people tell us stories, right? And, uh, you know, all the, not only this, but also I think in the same time, when we are making decisions about, you know, what kind of vaccine we take, we also, you know, we check other news, right? We search sure. online, seeing, you know, news about AstraZeneca, and we see reports about, you know, those very, very rare blood clot incidents. And uh, mm-hmm. that kind of creates all of the narratives around the, the vaccine. Yes, and and but I suppose, and you're quite right too. Uh, as a as a communications professor, you would know this. Uh, it is instantly compelling 
when you're in conversation or particularly listening to someone and they start to tell a story. Let me tell you a little story. And, and immediately, if you're driving in your car and you're listening to the radio and somebody says, let me tell you a little story, your first instinct is to reach over and turn it up because you're right. Stories are, are infinitely more appealing to us than uh, recitations of lists of logical scientific facts. And so when she confused this very scientific discussion with a story, it really, it really sent a lot of people sideways, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. And also, I think the the challenge there is um, the challenge. The challenge there is um, you know, scientific facts is actually challenging to communicate, especially given the current context we are in, right? So we are not we are dealing. I think we we are still in the crisis time, right? And this yes. is unprecedented because you know this crisis has been dragging on for so long, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of uncertainties can compounding upon each other. That, so that's I think that's kind of what the trouble is, and uh, so in that kind of context, you know, keeping keeping the message simple, consistent, and more importantly, to you know have more kind of coordinated message, you know, be, between the different levels of the public health system is mm-hmm. crucial. Agreed. And <clears throat> you talk about in your article, and it's a good article too. I commend this to uh, to our listeners. You talk about communicating uncertainty and that and, and it's really interesting Sibo that the, the timing on all of this I have I have a son, I have two boys uh and, and my oldest had just received his first AstraZeneca shot about three days before this particular uh, conversation took place and and the confusion began so he had he had texted me a couple of days earlier you know uh, with a, a you know very proud little hey hey got my shot now I'm in the game uh, getting ready for you know dose two hopefully soon and then my next tech uh, a couple of days later is what on earth is this about did i just do something wrong and he's in his 30s he doesn't need to be uh, rethinking something that uh, that you know he's been told is good to do for over a year so it was he was very angry yeah i think yeah I, I share that feeling i think a lot of people feel 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 the problem there um you know, I think also it's very more important, right? So many, many, you know, crisis communicators is talking about, you know, the importance to having what we call an ongoing approach to communication is that, you know, yeah. you should, you know, when you are delivering a message, you should have who is your audience in mind and, you know, you have to make necessary follow-ups. And uh, I think in the current situation, it's absolutely necessary, right? So, you know, public health officials or, you know, the different public health agencies, they should, you know, do some necessary follow-up with people who already received AstraZeneca to say, you know, to, you know, even do a kind of routine checking to, you know, give them a call to see whether, you know, they are feeling well. I think that is important. That is kind of really confirming people that, you know, they have been taken care of. We know that, you know, the blood call is a very, very, very rare situation, but still, sure, I yeah. think right now people, people are anxious because of, you know, all of the information, you know, being writing there. So I think that's kind of the, that's kind of the key, right? So you have to kind of keep your communication line with people who already received AstraZeneca open and, you know, to address their concerns, you know, I think that's kind of the the next step, the most important thing, right? To do the follow-up and also, for example, right? So right now there has been more discussions about, you know, how about the second dose, right? So I think kind of acknowledging that and basically 
to show the efforts that we are doing the best we can and we are you know doing further research while doing all the analysis to ensure you know the public health um yep. safety i think that's kind of the key to you know to kind of alleviate some of the kind of the very confusing information that has been there for the past week. Yeah, I'm curious, Professor Chen, whether you think their their management of this confusion uh, in the wake of this uh, nasty comment and, oh, my sister did it, I'd feel terrible, and and other revealing remarks that were, were, were terribly helpful. So the government has tried to to walk past that and and get on with their program how how effective has their management of this confusion been so far um yeah i think before we see that i think we should we need to acknowledge that you know our public health officials as well as all the doctors there they have done you know very very challenging job right like i said mm-hmm. earlier this oh, is sure. a very challenging yeah, this is a very, very challenging situation because, you know, no no kind of public health crisis has been lasting for so long. Um, and, you know, in terms of the current case, I, I definitely I feel, you know, that the management could be improved. And, for example, um, you know, I just, you know, actually checked the Nazis website to see if there's any new updates regarding, you know, you know, more kind of formal clarification on, you know, vaccine usage or, particular, you know, the language they have been used so far there isn't been right so we know a few days has passed i mean granted right this is a very complex scientific issue and uh, but given all of the confusion i i feel that you know there we need kind of more information on this and more kind of clarification from the top to you know essentially kind of clar- um clarify you know the cross there i think that's mm-hmm. kind of where there is and also whether I wonder, you know, further discussion could be done, you know, talking about, let's say, the coordination, right, the communication coordination between Nazi and uh, Public Health Canada to to make sure that, you know, when there are further updates regarding, you know, vaccine usage, right, the information can be more consistent across the board. Absolutely, yeah. Our guest joining us from the School of Communications at Ryerson University in Toronto is Professor Sibo Chen, and we're here talking about an article Professor Chen wrote recently uh, at theconversation.com entitled, Public Health Officials Are Failing to Communicate Effectively About AstraZeneca. Professor Chen, uh, I mentioned before the news break that I was going to come back at you with a question that uh, I hope you had a moment or two to think about because uh, this is this is something I'm picking up on something you said, sir, about uh, th- when we're discussing this this whole business of how uh, messaging from public health officials is so crucial during this time, especially as time continues to go on. We're what fourteen months and counting so far. Messaging has been critical from day one, but as this thing stretches on, it's, it seems forever. Messaging is even more critical. So, how do public health officials get? Uh, do a better job of communicating those dry as dust scientific facts they consider perhaps more important than we do, but nonetheless important enough to communicate to us on a regular basis. When they start, our Hello? eyes sort of our gla- our eyes sort of glaze over. Yeah, sorry. And uh, so the, and, I cannot uh, hear you. Oh goodness, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, Julie's uh, in oh. between us. There you are. Have we got yeah. you now? So we can't hear me now. Yes. Okay. I can hear you loud and clear. We're yeah. zooming okay, so, this morning, friends. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I think I think like like what we discussed earlier, right? So only giving out you know dry scientific information, 
in many cases doesn't work. And uh, I think one additional challenge these days that you know for you know any public health communicators is that you know when you are giving out information that you know your own narrative compete with others, right? So how do you ensure that your message stands out and uh, you know, to be clear, right? So I think our the public confidence in our public health officials is still very, very high. And, uh, you know, they are doing decent job. And, but like we said, they can definitely do better job. And I think that kind of starts with, you know, I think many, many kind of, you know, strategies can be applied there. But I think the first strategy to kind of further improve that is to provide a more kind of localized message, right? So in addition, mm-hmm. you know, to have our federal health officers um, provincial health officers, right? So we may even try to a, additional approach, you know, to get a more kind of a localized message, right? So do we mm. have, let's say, for example, people in Burnaby or people in Coquitlam, you know, you have this kind of localized voices to address specific, more community specific information. That's one way to, you know, increase the public trust and also, you know, to make your information more relate, relatable to others. Interesting stuff. Now we're we're also finding out, and this is disturbing. And I'm glad you opened the door to this the the trust part of the conversation, Professor Chen, because it's absolutely critical that the public on side, especially as we now are in a position to to vaccinate millions of Canadians, and then that then we hear uh, other uh, examples of erosion of public trust. For example, here in British Columbia, and you've spent some time at Simon Fraser. You know how to say Coquitlam. You know what I'm talking about. Here in BC, uh, we found out, for example, the government has been withholding certain batches of information uh, for politically correct reasons, not medical ones, uh, and again. Again, uh, whether or not it may have influenced the uh, any, any outcomes on a, on a large scale, not likely, but people know things, even though the government doesn't tell us. And when we find out things that we've known all along that have been deliberately withheld from us, uh, we really do have a moment of what on earth, how stupid do you think we are? And that's, that's not a, a healthy moment from the point of view of government communications, is it? Yes, I mean transparency has been has been key, and especially I think the problem there is that you know, for uh, just for, you know from my end, like I don't know exactly, you know, I haven't really followed up the news like why they are holding the information. I know that they say that they haven't hold withhold the information, but the problem is there. If you are in kind of in my situation, like I heard the news, I haven't you know followed up. Like I think many of the listeners are on the same on the same side, right? So we kind mm-hmm. of heard about the news, but we haven't followed up. That's when you know confusion emerges, and if there's no additional communication er- efforts, kind of clarify those kind of confusion, right? So we will kind of think twice when you know the next round of public announcements coming out. That's what I said, right? So this kind of you know lack of transparency and this kind of you know hiccups in the communication process will damage the public trust. And uh, you know I think the problem we have is that because, like you said, we have already been fourteen months into the crisis and there are just like so many uncertainties hanging around there and uh, these kind of you know hiccups seem to be inevitable so i think the more important thing is that you know just like keep high alert on these kind of issues and to be sure that you know when this kind of confusion emerged right there should be some immediate follow-ups to be done so that you know they can minimize you know the potential danger of disinformation especially these days you know on social media 
Interesting. And of course, social media is a factor that is really, uh, 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 it can be a positive in certain ways, but it's also, it can be a very negative force. And for confusion to be emanating from what is supposed to be the source of credibility, uh, the government and particularly its scientists, uh, when that's, when when the confusion uh, becomes uh, noticeable it feeds the machine of those who are who are really out to be negative about all of this in the first place and that is not the least bit helpful is it yes right so when there is ambiguity like there will be you know competing narratives and uh, those na- those narratives in this kind of new media environment will be further escalated by you know the follow-up online conversations and that's, right. that's why i said right so this has been really challenging and uh, really to kind of counter this online information requires team efforts, right? So I don't think, let's say, you know, we only get our public health officials on the front stage will kind of clarify this this misinformation, right? We need additional efforts, right? We need other voices from doctors, but also in the same time, we need more kind of a sense of conversation, right? So in many ways, we are getting announcements from public health officials, but we rarely had the opportunity to have conversation, right? Then. I think what's kind of missing in the whole picture is that do we have good public communicators who can who are be able to have you more conversation with right. people online, right? They, yeah. they are not necessarily, let's say, to be federal, uh, you know, to be public health officials, right? They can be doctors, they can be nurses, they can be, you know, people knowledgeable about the situation, right? If those people, their voices matters, right? Their voices are matters in this kind of the overall kind of the counter disinformation efforts. Right. And, and, and speaking of voices that matter, and, and again, this goes to my question, Sibo, uh, about uh, the effectiveness or the government retooling its effectiveness in terms of getting the messaging out, simplifying the message, and then uh, finding the right communicator. When we, when we have questions, we've been following this, of course, uh, all along, and we've been following the messaging in the United States from Dr. Fauci and others. And the thing that I found most effective about Dr. Anthony Fauci is the simplicity simplicity of his messaging. He speaks in layman's terms and he speaks in very simple terms. He boils it down to what it would be like in your life or the person next door or your grandparents. And, and in other words, he can take a very a very complicated question and and boil it down to why it should matter to you. And that simplicity of messaging has been his hallmark for 14 months and people still well what does Fauci say Uh, because that's what I'll I'll follow whatever he says because they've come to understand that he's not trying to trick them if anything he's just trying to to clarify and and as a result we've come to trust him and his attempts at clarification we don't have that kind of character in this country a a single individual but we might have a a group of people in the same business who could take more than a few pages from the fauci notebook of how to communicate don't you think yes i i agree i think like i i really appreciate fauci's approach to to all of the issue right especially you know during the early days right when there we we saw the same thing right there has been you know conflict information and you know the public health um they were, you know, in the United States, they would recommend one thing first and then, you know, new information available. They have to crack their previous statements, right? So right. that's the challenging part of the job. And what Fauci did is that he was able to say, not say that, okay, because of this new available scientific information, then, you know, he, 
gave a bunch of you know jargons, right? He doesn't do it in that way, right? So he he used very simple words to mm. you know get the message pass around, and that's kind of the crucial key, right? Sometimes you know it's not necessary to you know talking talking in kind of this kind of abstract numbers. Sometimes people just want those kind of concrete. Um, suggestions, and then yep. you know, if they have questions, they want answers. They want answers in lay, like what you said, right, in layman's terms, so that you know, you can, can get a better appreciation. I think that all, of course, that takes time, right? So Fauci was able to do that, you know, not from the very beginning, but from all of the efforts he has been doing for the past fourteen months. And I think, sure. you know, I think we are we are not doing that bad, but still definitely, like what you said, there are rooms for improvement, right? We need to find the ways to, you know further kind of simplify the messages we're sending out that's right that uh, all we want is more and more of us to be vaccinated so we can get to back to something resembling normal professor chen sibo it's been a real pleasure having you on the program today sir it's a, a nice opportunity to to get to meet you uh, the article friends is entitled public health officials are failing to communicate effectively about astrazeneca and it's a good read at the conversation.com the author professor sibo chen from the school of communications at ryerson university in toronto Professor Chen, Sibo, thanks for this. Great to speak to you. Great to see, uh, speak to you. Thank you. Our pleasure. Joined on the line by White Rock City Councilor Dave Chesney to talk about the big plan for summer 2021 on one of British Columbia's most popular destinations. Councilor, good morning. Morning, Sterling. Dave, it's uh, good to have you with us. About two weeks ago, uh, in this exact time spot, we had a visit from uh, the White Rock Business Improvement Association's Alex Nixon, who uh, basically presented the wish list for the merchants and retailers and business people in White Rock for what they would like to see happen during the summer in order to, well, survive in the case of many restaurants and other businesses. So uh, at that time, Mr. Nixon presented his wish list and then pointed to a meeting coming up with White Rock Council at which time this would be discussed and at which time they would hammer out the big summer plan. So I'm assuming, Dave, all of that is done. So tell us about the big summer plan and where that wish list for the closure of one lane on Marine Drive along that gorgeous beach. How did that turn out? <laughs> That's a big question, Sterling. Um, just to refresh uh, your memory and the listener's memory, Originally, the motion came before council uh, to close down the north lane of Marine Drive. That's the lane that's <clears throat> closest to the businesses and allow foot traffic still to continue along the sidewalk uh, with mm -hmm. the north lane being closed, allowing the restaurants to extend their patios. Well, that was turned down summarily by the fire department, our engineering staff and the police department, all stating concerns, especially the emergency response team. Sure. If we were to do that, access to the beach would almost be negated. And if there was any kind of an emergency down there, uh, they'd have incredible difficulties accessing it. So that was turned down and then mm -hmm. uh, brought back. And uh, the second time it was brought back, uh, there had been some lobbying from the Business Improvement Association, the members of council and the mayor and Everybody, with the exception of myself, seemed to think it was a good idea and uh, last Monday night endorsed uh, to go ahead with the uh, proposition of uh, making Marine Drive one lane eastbound <clears throat> uh, for the remainder of the summer till after the Labor Day long weekend. Right. Where are we at right now? Uh, the press release the city opened this or issued this week uh, couldn't clearly indicate any real time frame. It's projected it might be two weeks, so that would be 
basically another 10 days from now. And uh, the plan is, unless something dramatic happens, uh, that's what's going to happen on our waterfront uh, uh, sort of as soon as possible, once they can get all the engineering and other problems satisfied to uh, their, uh, their findings. Yeah, it's interesting, Dave. We were we were uh, driving uh, down Main Street yesterday, where they've done some of this in Vancouver, just uh, taken over arbitrarily what used to be parking lanes and put uh, sort of pop up, if you will, patios from small restaurants out there. And we're going to talk to Sarah Kirby Young in Vancouver about all of this tomorrow. But there, and and you've already talked about it uh, in circuitously. There's a danger aspect to all of this, not only beyond getting emergency vehicles in and out of crowded areas, but also some of these pop up patios are just sort of all it just sort of popped up literally on the side of the street and uh they're they're quite exposed and i think when you were talking to your police and fire officials initially about all of this i'm sure that that would be some of the concerns raised that these these people sitting having a, a beer and a burger uh on on a pop-up patio are pretty exposed there's not a lot of safety barriers around them and i i would imagine how did they deal with that at the council level when that specific issue came up uh, as far as the barricades are concerned, the engineering staff, there's these large orange barricades that uh, are water-filled. Oh, right, so okay. Be, the, pro- the price of that apparently is, is somewhere in the neighborhood of $50,000 to secure and $40,000 a month. So uh, it's going to be quite an expensive proposition. As far as mm-hmm. closing the lanes where there are where there used to be a parking lane, I've seen that done all across the country, Toronto, Montreal, sure. Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, around through Vancouver. Unfortunately, we didn't have a parking lane on Marine Drive. We have right. giant parking lots. So, uh, ostensibly, we just, you know, uh, I know you've lived here for, you had lived here <clears throat> for a number of years, Sterling. You know what the traffic can be like on Marine Drive at the best of times. It's bumper to bumper. Last sure. night, I went down, had a look at it. And uh, the vestiges of the old custom car crews and the hot rod motorcycles and boys and girls enjoying summer uh it was it was it was bumper to bumper with two lanes so once you yeah. put that down to one lane um and rerouting the traffic off of marine drive uh coming in from the freeway which is where the majority of our traffic arrives on our waterfront now that a lot of that traffic is going to be pushed up onto the hillside so the residents on victoria and, and uh, columbia avenue uh, are are quite concerned about the increased, massive increase of traffic that's going to be pushed onto their streets. It's uh, the city, I wouldn't even say that we're divided. I would say it's 90-10 right now. Uh, and unless the city is able to provide more information on how they're going to solve problems, uh, TransLink wasn't consulted. What are we going to do with the buses? They sure, yeah. travel both ways. Mm-hmm, uh, right. Again, I'll refer back to you living here. <clears throat> you know, when those big trucks have to deliver to the restaurants, they they normally block one lane of traffic. Well, now Definitely. they're going to be blocking the only lane of traffic. Uh, garbage pickup. There's a number of things that I don't think were thought through, and for that reason, that's why I voted against the motion. Interesting. Now let's let's step step back, Dave, because you and I both know, and I mentioned it already. White Rock is one of the Lower Mainland's most popular destinations. On a nice day, uh, lots of people flock to White Rock. A because it's safe, it's well known, and, and and so we've had a couple of days already of super nice weather. Uh, back about a month ago, uh, when we were surprised, for example, and had several days, and White Rock was just overwhelmed. It's going to be that way again as this summer unfolds. And of course, you're still really, we're still dealing with a public health emergency. So, what what contingency plans are there for those days? Oh, like today, Dave, sunny skies, twenty degrees, 
you're going to have a lot of folks on White Rock Beach today. Well, you hit the nail on the head, Sterling. Before any of this really started, uh, you're right back in uh, early April, we had a good 10-day run of Mm summer-like weather. And, uh, you know, with the pandemic, I understand people want to get outside, get some fresh air, go for a walk. Uh, Walking around Langley, Newton, Cloverdale, Abbotsford is nowhere near as exciting as coming to White Rock. So we're an absolute mecca. So I had asked staff uh, to bring forward a report how we possibly may be able to control uh, the traffic to our waterfront. The residents, a lot of the residents, uh, are concerned about uh, their access to the waterfront just because there's so many people down there. Uh, a lot of times shoulder to shoulder on the promenade, uh, mm-hmm. no social distancing, no masks. So a lot of people were, were concerned. We don't have the ability to, uh, I don't believe we have the ability, I think that has to come from the province, to specify that when you're outdoors in White Rock, you have to wear a mask. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, everybody that's flooding down to White Rock, I get it. I understand that. But I also know that the province, through uh, Dr. Henry, uh, has stated stay home, stay local, and non-essential travel <laughs> is frowned upon. Going to the beach uh, is is joyous, but it's it's non-essential. And Fraser Health is the hotspot currently in British Columbia. We have double the standard of the Vancouver coastal cases here, and a, a large portion of that is in central Surrey, which mm-hmm. is four to five miles north of us. And a lot of these people uh, use White Rock as their backyard. So sure. I'm not sure what the the, the limit is for local or stay in your neighborhood, but a lot of people in Surrey consider White Rock to be part of their neighborhood. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and and we've seen that for for a couple of generations now, haven't we? And that's the problem, isn't it? Everybody is so comfortable just popping down to White Rock for a day. And of course, uh, and I'm thinking uh, back to our original discussion about the summer master plan and reducing that beach strip marine drive down to one lane. That's going to force a lot of these visitors onto residential streets because if it's closed and one way only, the only way to get around town is to go through neighborhoods. I can't imagine a lot of people in those neighborhoods being real tickled about that prospect. Well, Sterling, you were here during the Sandcastle competitions. You can you can well imagine what's going to happen. So are there contingencies for today? I mean, you, you've, you've got the White Rock plan. You're going to put up these barricades and close Marine Drive in, in, due, in due course, because, of course, we're still under the, the uh, circuit breaker restrictions from Dr. Henry. But when all of those are eased off, then, then this, new, uh, then this uh, phase will kick in. But between now and then, we've got days like today. And, and uh, I, I would imagine, from the point of view of being in business in White Rock, a day like today is a gift from God because there's going to be some customers for a change. On the other hand, from an administrative point of view, it's a bit of a nightmare, isn't it? Well, it's absolutely a nightmare. Uh, As I say, the press release that you can read in my online newspaper, the White Rock Sun, there's a cheap uh, inadvertent plug, uh, basically stated that we've adopted the idea, now we're going to figure out how to make it it work. So at this point in time, outside of uh, the water-filled barriers running down the middle of Marine Drive, uh, that's about as far as we've gone, to be quite honest. Uh, as I say, even at uh, Monday's council meeting, uh, once again, the fire department and the police department expressed concerns, um, but it uh, seemed to be ignored by the majority of council, obviously uh, everyone on council but me. And I just think, you know, I pray to God that that doesn't turn into our worst nightmare of uh, some kind of an emergency on the waterfront. Yeah. And our emergency vehicles will have absolutely no access. Uh, God forbid. <clears throat> but I think there's, there's. I think this just 
was poorly conceived, to be very honest. It was uh, driven heavily by the Business Improvement Association. We have other businesses all throughout White Rock. Uh, everybody's in the same boat. This was not something that was brought down by the city of White Rock. It's a provincial uh, rule about no dining inside. Uh, of so course, that, yeah. that goes right across the entire province. I think the city now kind of inadvertently maybe hoping that uh, after the May long weekend that we haven't got this in place and Dr. Henry opens up to inside dining, uh, this may go away. But that may be just wishful thinking on my part. The city may say, you know what, we're still going to do it to help those mm-hmm. businesses throughout the entire summer months. So, you know, I'm waiting with bated breath, not unlike uh, the rest of White Rock, to see what All exactly right. the plan is going to be. Well, we'll uh, when the plan gets a little more formed or takes a little better shape, uh, we'll check back with you, Dave, and uh, and see how things are shaping up for the balance of the summer. And in the meantime, friends, he already plugged it once. I'm happy to do it again. If you want to know what the heck is going on in White Rock, Councillor Chesney is also the editor of the WhiteRockSun.com. It's an outstanding newspaper, and it's an online newspaper, but it gives you the, the complete rundown on what's going on in the rock. Councillor Chesney, Dave, thanks for this. Great to have you on the show always great to talk to you Sterling. dave chesney from city council in white rock well it's a pleasure to welcome neil middleton to our show mr middleton is vice president marketing and sales and executive producer digital content with our vancouver symphony orchestra mr middleton neil good morning and welcome sir good morning how are you doing today I'm just fine, thank you. How is it How is it possible to be anything but on this beautiful Saturday morning? You've been working on this annual day of music at the Vancouver Symphony for quite some time. It starts in less than two hours at 10 o'clock. It's all happening at dayofmusic.ca. Tell us more, Neil. It looks pretty exciting. And by the way, my congratulations to the people who put together that minute and a half uh, trailer video to promote the day of music. It is simply spectacular. It, you know, when we made that trailer, it got us all excited. We, uh, it, it kind of, we kind of realized this is, this is going to be pretty cool. In, in 2019, uh, in our 100th anniversary year, we decided one of the things we did to celebrate was created this idea of a day of music. Mm-hmm. We invited 100 different musicians and ensembles, choirs, high school bands, marching bands, every kind of musician downtown to the Orpheum in Vancouver and we had 100 performances over 12 hours across six stages. 14,000 people came. It was, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. 2020, um, we were just in the, in the works of expanding. We were going to put up a stage on Granville. Everybody knows what happened spring 2020. We don't need to talk about that. Right. Um, and now, after a year of um, what's been a really hard year for performing arts, it's been a hard year for everybody. What's been hard for us is being separated from our audiences. No doubt. Um, but it's also been this year where there's been a lot of creativity. Uh, musicians just want to make music and have figured out a lot of ways to come together, record, uh, create virtual performances, share them out with the public. And we realized we, we, need to get, we need to have another day of music. We need to celebrate this work. Um, and a lot of people maybe don't know just how much creativity there's been in the province. Uh, and so we, want, we invited, again, uh, musicians, ensembles from across the province. And this is what's been pretty remarkable this year. This year, it's a virtual day of music. Yep. Um, and so peop- so we've got the Cantaloupe Symphony Orchestra. We've got uh, musicians from Vancouver Island. We've got people from across the Lower Mainland that it would have been really hard to get in a real day, of, in, a, in a live day of music. 
real is the wrong word now, in a mm, live yeah. music. Um, and uh, they've all come together. They've given us just a surprising variety of shows. And that's what that trailer finally brought together for us. There's just so much work that's happened. And so two things are happening today. So we've launched this page, dayofmusic.ca. It's up now. There's a yep. hundred, uh, over a hundred free performances that are now streaming um, that you can just go and watch on this Netflix style page. And then at 10 a.m., we're launching uh, a live stream where our president, Angela Elster, will be hosting a five-hour marathon, interviewing these musicians, learning the stories behind their performances, playing clips of the performances, learning about what they've had to go through this year to learn and adapt where they're headed. And it will close with a live stream performance of Meister Otto Tausk and the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra at 2.40 p.m. We'll be playing live um, some music for wind instruments. Um, Dvorak's oh. beautiful serenade for winds. Interesting. So mo- while most of the program, Neil, is uh, pre-recorded and all the rest of it, today there will be a live insert from the uh, woodwind section of the VSO. Exactly. Exactly. Fantastic. And by the way, let me just take a second here and, and, and go back to that trailer and, and, and uh, just invite our listeners this morning, Neil, to go to take, uh, take two minutes and go to dayofmusic.ca and just press uh, uh, hit, hit play on the trailer, the, the commercial, if you will, that they made for the day. And you too will get excited about what's coming up uh, beginning officially at 10 o'clock this morning. And it is you a know virtual. What? I got to tell you something, sir. Like we've actually replaced it with a countdown to the live stream so if you want to see that teaser you got to go to our facebook page it's on our youtube page there's a lot of places you can see it but actually that spot now is counting down to when the live stream starts at 10 a.m as a matter Sorry of fact it is too i'm on it i'm on it right now because I, I, I saw the trailer the other day and i just flipped out and i, I immediately buzzed andrew our producer and said you got to see this so uh the uh, vso's facebook page is where you can see that trailer dayofmusic.ca is the performance venue if you will and we will see some live performances along with uh, those pre-recorded uh, performances you've already alluded to and i guess the most exciting part neil is is the fact that you have involved performers from all over bc and from all forms of music yeah wait, wait that that's what really kind of brought this all together for us when we saw this amazing thing there's this there's this choir the vancouver youth choir that you know it's been really hard for singers because you can't you can't be in a small room uh you know breathing really loudly sure, yeah. everybody so right. they went and found an, a parquet that's not in use spread out and made this beautiful recording in a parquet it actually it works really well these other guys these creative um percussionists w- went and found a bunch of different glass objects like the big the big jugs that you make wine with and uh, small bottles, and they cut them up, and they sanded them, and they made this kind of glass, uh, I don't know what to call it, but this big glass structure, and they play this most beautiful kind of meditative thing on it. There's just, there's there's a ton of different things on there, and, um, you know, the the beautiful part is today's day of music, we're launching it today, most of it's going to stay up for a year. So Good. you can go and check some stuff out today and you can come back uh, as at your leisure um, and just work your way through this, this collection and this sort of archive of what BC musicians have been doing this year. 
Indeed. And of course, it's the variety that's so appealing, Neil. You've got uh, Celtic music, Chinese folk music, uh, symphonic music, chamber music. Uh, I mean, it just, it, it really does cover the entire spectrum. And that's what makes it fun as well, especially coming from all of the performers being BC folks. Uh, Neil, uh, we've talked briefly and, and you've identified the, how difficult the past year has been for performers, musicians and, and actors and other performers. So this is finally an opportunity for many of them uh, it, it's still not the same they're still not in the room you're still not going to get that immediate feedback and all the rest of it but at least they get to play and sing and perform tell us about vso and your expectations for the rest of this year because we're we're getting vaccinated neil there are mm-hmm. uh, dr henry says by the fall we may it may she, she says i want to go to a canucks game this fall so are you uh, sort of trying to plan uh, for some kind of fall in perform- live performance season, or is it too early to go there yet? Well, we're definitely going to be ready for it. We're, we have, um, I think everybody's learned how to just be flexible this year. So we may not be announcing it far in advance, but we're, we're deep into planning. If we can have 250 people, if we can have 500 or 1,000 people in a concert mm-hmm. hall, we'll be ready. And it will, um, I think that the key thing this year is going to be just be ready to adapt and change. And we're going to ask our audiences to be just a little bit patient. But yeah, we're very excited to be able to bring people back into the Orpheum. Our whole sector is just excited. And we know there's giant demand. Mm -hmm. Every uh, place where they are are reopening, uh, Israel's reopening, Australia has been open for a while. There's just huge audiences coming back into yeah. into the concert halls, into arenas, and we can't. That, that energy is going to be so much fun. We can't wait. For Indeed, it. it is, and that and that's the good part. You make the plans, and you know when you finally get the green light, the place is going to be as full as is allowed at that moment. Neil, thank you for this. Uh, Dayofmusic.ca, friends, outstanding website, and just wonderful performances by BC people beginning officially at ten o'clock this morning. Sponsored by the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, and there, Neil Middleton is with us today. Neil, enjoy your day of music, and thanks for the the heads up for our listeners this morning thanks so much for having us on our pleasure that's it for today michael campbell on deck money talks is coming up right after the 8 30 news enjoy this incredible saturday julie and i will see you first thing tomorrow morning hi it's shauna and i might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables hey it's ryan and i might be a bad parent because i went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth johnny here i might be a bad parent because in my house the tooth fairy gives pocket change but we're not alone len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital and andy left his two-year-old at the rink all right guys i'm sure we're not alone like andy's kid (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.